I'm having a moment. Hold on. Yeah, no problem. Ah! Okay, I'm back. Hello and welcome to the Magic Winks Clubhouse, a podcast where two best friends get together every other week and recap the Italian Magical Girl series, Winks Club. I'm Brendan, Fairy of the Surging Sea. And I'm Tess, Fairy of the Rolling Stones. Today, we are watching Fate the Winks Saga, Season 1, Episode 2, No Strangers Here. This episode was released along with the rest of the season on January 22nd, 2021 and was directed by Lisa James Larson, who also directed last week's episode. I couldn't find that information in time for recording. Uh, this episode was written by Speedweed. Wait! Speedweed? Speedweed. Honest to God, Speedweed. Speedweed. 50% speed, 50% weed. Dude, he's done work on NCIS. Yeah, he has. He's the NCIS guy. Yes, he is. <gasps> we got Speedweed! <laughs> the title of this episode is a quote by W.B. Yeats. There are no strangers here, only friends we haven't met yet. I think that's a lovely sentiment, don't you? Maybe the real boss were the friends we didn't make along the way. <laughs> so I did put out the call for uh, questions before this episode went out, and I believe we have an email question from Crest? Yes, we do. Um, our question, which he helpfully added as the subject of the, um, of the, uh, email. <laughs> I'm glad you've adopted that as well. We have fun here. <laughs> uh, he asks, um, Hello, here's a creation challenge for Fate 2. Going back to the cartoon verse, design specialist costumes for the girls that aren't just unitard stroke bodysuits. I mean, my, my response to that is that's, that's the specialist uniform in the cartoon. Uh... I don't want to. I don't want to just reject this outright. But like, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're asking. We're terribly sorry. We do appreciate you and everything that you contribute to this podcast. <laughs> we're, we're we're just a little lost. Um, but if you uh, maybe next time. Sorry, dude. We love you. <laughs> um all right and our second question of the wonderful day comes from olga the moments but olga what he said if you're the person i'm thinking of We have a review from Russia. I just, part of me assumes it's Olga. <laughs> oh, 
Also, that's all as right. much Russian as I speak. That's all you're getting out of me. Uh, svidaniya. Ya sošla suma. Ekaterina Petrovna Zamolozkova? Your dad just calls me Katya. All right, and she asks... You're so fast. You're stupid. <laughs> Uh, she asks, what if the threats that the Winks are dealing with aren't actually that dangerous in the grand scheme of things? Because if they were, wouldn't some sort of magic's police or intelligence agencies been involved? Do they even exist in this universe? Talking about the cartoon, specifically. So, unfortunately, I I hate to be the, the bearer of bummer news, but you know, this is this is the kind of thing where if you think about it too hard, it falls apart. Because yes, obviously, if if there really were three witches who were out to rule the world, you would assume that the governments of the various planets in the magical dimension would make some sort of concerted effort to help Althea uh, at all. But, you know, it's a kid's show, so it's up to uh, five teenagers to deal with the whole problem. Kind of like Power Rangers, where it's like... If there really was a giant monster on the loose, wouldn't, like, the army or something try and stop this? No, it's up to five teenagers and a giant robot. Exactly. So I'd say that this is just really a, a, a casualty of kids' show logic. This falls under the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. They really are the only ones who can stop this. Recruit a team of fairies with attitude. Bring in a sixth one along the way. And then a seventh. And then forget about the seventh. Yeah, we don't talk about her. <laughs> Alright, Scrappy-Doo. Scrappy, fairy of animals. Um. <laughs> and uh, just a quick little thing. Uh, first of all, thank you for your questions. I'm sorry that they were answered not curtly, but quickly almost dismissively and i would also like to apologize for that we are not trying to just cast your questions aside <laughs> we are incredibly grateful for the small fan base we have carved out in the internet um just to bring up the itunes or our apple podcast reviews we have eight five star ratings yay and three reviews and we do see them and they make me happy inside every single time I see them because people like us. They really, really like us. Thank you. And I'm still almost, almost certain that one of those five star ratings is my mom, but that means seven. People who are not my mom like this podcast. <laughs> if you, which is now time to segue into a shameless plug. If you like what you hear or if you have constructive criticism to offer, you can go on over to our iTunes or your listening platform of choice and leave us a review and a rating. Uh, Five-star ratings really help us get up there in the charts and help uh, find people who liked Wink's Club as a kid, or maybe they're brand-new fans who come in with fate and they want to hear people talk about the Netflix show that they binged and liked. If you do have any questions for next time, you can tweet them in a 
280 characters or less at our Twitter, at MagicWinksPod. Or if you have any longer form questions or, again, headcanons, those would be fun to listen to, you can email us them at MagicWinksClubhouse at gmail.com. That is the name of this podcast at gmail.com. So with that out of the way, I believe we're ready to get into the episode. And since I started last time, Tess, would you like to take our cold open? We begin our episode with the rumble of thunder as Dowling and Silva cross through the barrier, talking about their prior battles against the Burned Ones. They're going to retrieve the Burned One that Dowling has chained up in the barn. Inside the barn, we get our good... We get our first good look at a burned one's face, and... Ooh! It's not good. Ooh, Ooh, it's great in the worst way possible. They nasty. It's disgusting. It is essentially a burned corpse with some reptilian aspects. Hot lizard zombies. Ugh. And not, like, sexy lizard zombies. No, I mean, like, en fuego lizard zombies. Skeleton made a beef jerky. Mm-hmm. Dowling is about to go try and probe this thing's mind, figure out what its plan is, if any. Because, remember, it's not dead. Just sleeping. And Silva's like, hey, what do you want, what are you expecting to find? And she says, answers. And we're hoping that it's only a lone wolf and not like, five million of them like there was in the battle for Althea in episode 25. Oh, God, can you imagine a flying burned one with those manta ray naked mole rat teeth? I'd rather not. Thank you. Silva then asks Dowling what she plans to do if there are more, and she does not answer. She kneels down before the burned one, and focuses her powers. Her eyes are glowing white, and she sees flashes of the shepherd who was killed last episode, Bloom being chased to the warehouse last episode, before she gets jump-scared by the burned one, and Silva pulls her back, because the burned one at this point has woken up. Because as you'll remember, last episode, Beatrix woke up. And title card. After our title card, we join Bloom and Aisha the next morning. Uh, Aisha tells her it's time to get ready for class, and she asks Bloom about how Bloom's feeling around the changeling issue, and Bloom says she's not thinking about it. God, that electric toothbrush sounds like a chainsaw. It's very loud. Intentionally so. Uh, Aisha tells Bloom to just uh, chug some coffee. And get ready to shower, because today is the day she's going to start learning how to use her powers. Wahoo! In Musa and Tara's room, Musa asks if asks Tara if she got a meme that Musa sent her. Tara says she did, then reveals she really didn't, and asks if Musa can tell when people are lying. And Musa promises her she can only detect emotions, not if people are lying. Uh, Tara goes to get undressed and then pauses because she's, like, kind of self-conscious about changing in front of Musa, and then excuses herself and grabs her clothes and goes off to the bathroom. And she starts to take her pajama top off when Aisha just busts on in 
And in a wonderful display of how differently all people are adjusted to nudity, uh, the heavily locker room adjusted Aisha just sits on the toilet in the open stall and pees in front of her. <laughs> Drops trow, pee. Oh, she's wearing um, a bathrobe, no trow to drop. Yeah, drop trow is funny. Um, is Tara a tiny gay or just nervous or a nervous tiny gay? I think the the implication is just she's self-conscious because she's bigger. But I could also buy the I don't want to get undressed in front of a pretty girl aspect. Because <laughs> look, nobody in Winx Club is ever heterosexual. They never have been and they never will be. God, we'll see that later on. Aisha asks if Tara, if she interrupted Tara getting dressed. And Tara just tries to brush it off and say she forgot her bra, but Aisha points out it's right next to her. And then Aisha just takes her robe off right in front of Tara and keeps talking to her while Tara is very obviously thrown <laughs> Uncomfortable. off. Yeah, she's very, she's, she's not used to this. She did not come from a naked household. She came from a household with plants. Plants don't judge you. Uh, and then she asks if Tara is going to be using the shower. Tara isn't. She's just going to get ready. So uh, Aisha goes to get in the shower and then asks if she heard Stella come in last night. Cut to Stella coming in this morning. Yeah, this is when we cut to Stella trying to sneak into the suite. But since Musa is legit at the door, she doesn't get very far. Yeah, it looks like there's a little kitchenette area next to their door and Musa's making a cup of coffee or something. It's like it's like a shared quad situation or something. I I don't know. We neither of us went to a college with dorms. I, I think it's um, you know that there's like a like a probably maybe not a mini fridge, but it's like a, a big hotel suite. So they've got at least like a kettle, a coffee pot, maybe a microwave, hot plate if someone brought one. Exactly. Musa notes that Stella is in the same outfit as last night, and Stella quips back by asking if she should tell Musa how she feels about that joke, since Musa already knows. Because, mind fairy. Empath powers always on a living hellscape. <laughs> I hate being me. But enough about you, let's get back to Musa. Stella then asks about Bloom, and... Musa rightfully starts jabbing at her about how the trauma Bloom went through the night before is all thanks to Stella, and Stella legit only asks about her ring. Bloom enters the fray and explains that a burned one took it. The burned one took it. And Stella <laughs> has the audacity to get indignant about Bloom losing one of the Solarian crown jewels. How dare you lose my magic ring when I sent you deep into the woods to either get eaten by a bear or just go home forever. How dare you lose my magic ring that I gave you telling you how to get home. What the hell? I don't know about you, but losing any crown jewel seems like it'd be a bad thing. Aisha comes out of the bathroom and points out that it's just as bad as giving the ring to Bloom in the first place because she doesn't she doesn't know what magic is. Anyway, oh man, this Stella is so different and I kind of love it. Hmm. 
she's not just one dimensional or two dimensional. She has layers. Like an onion. Or an ogre. Or a parfait. Cake. Everyone loves cake. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, Bloom says that Dowling has the creature locked up, and if they asked, she could probably get the ring back for them. But Stella says no, and we'll figure out how to get it after class, and until then, no one says anything. Also, let Tara know because she has a big mouth, and Stella goes to open her door, and there's Tara pulling on a jumper and letting Stella know that she got the message. Because Stella's room was empty. That last bit was kind of funny, honestly. It's like, nope, nope, yeah, I got it. Mum's the word. Uh, next scene, we cut to Beatrix walking up a stairway, rounding the corner into Dowling's office, which it feels like she's trying to take over at this point. <laughs> and Dowling is working on some logistics with Callum. Remember the secretary from last episode? Curly hair, big nose, Adam's apple, can't miss him. <laughs> He looks like a British accent sounds. <laughs> Beatrix is here, of course, to do some more kissing us by offering to carry something called the vessel to the stone circle where the rest of the first years have gathered. For, I don't know, a bonfire or something? I don't know. The vessel is a very vague and underwhelming term for this thing. And Dowling kind of brushes her off saying that she has an assistant already and you are a first year you should be at the stone circle with the rest of them anyway Beatrix leaves and is just someone who has never been told no before in her life and Callum caps things off by remarking that brown nosers are usually a bit more subtle so both Callum and uh, Professor Dowling can tell that something ain't right with her. I mean, Beatrix could not be more obviously kissing us. She tried. This is when we get a drone shot of the Stone Circle, where, uh, which is a really cool set. It's it's literally just like a bunch of big styrofoam rocks arranged with like some seats on them, like natural benches. But how do you know it's styrofoam? I've been to enough anime conventions. <laughs> and there's like a, a central pillar. Uh, so Dowling explains that they need to connect with their ninjetti animal spirits. Uh, she tells that uh, Stella is graceful like a crane. Musa is intelligent like a wolf. Aisha is graceful. No. I already did the crane. Abort! Abort! <laughs> abort reference! Abort reference! Ba 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 da ba ba! Falcon. <laughs> Punch! Are we referencing another fuss? 90s movie in this bus episode? Have we referenced one yet? Oh, we did a whole bunch on the Super Mario Bros. movie last time. Oh, maybe it'll be a running gag for uh, for the fate stuff. Okay. So Dowling explains that magic is connected to the very essence of nature to the first years, and that within the stone circle, magic is magnified. The vessel, which is this little cauldron, 
tests a student's ability to channel magic. She also reveals that eventually fairies can learn to connect with the other elements, but the first year Dalphia is centered around the element a fairy is born with. She lists four of the six elements we know about as the matching main character displays the power. Earth, which comprises soil, sand, rock, and plant life, is matched with terra, making vines twist out of the vessel. Water, the lakes and oceans of the world, as well as the molecules that exist in all organisms, as Aisha makes water bubble out of it. That is a terrifying thought. Yeah, Aisha can bloodbend. Don't worry about it. Uh, The mind, thoughts, memories, dreams, and pink energy sparks between Muse's hands. And air, speed, temperature, sound, pressure, and electromagnetism as lightning cracks between Beatrix's fingers. But I thought lightning was supposed to be a firebender thing. Yeah, but you can't really... You can't really display wind unless you color code it. It doesn't work that well in a live action medium. I was making a dumb joke. I know, but it's it was something I was legitimately thinking about is why don't we see Beatrix using more wind-based powers and electricity is just easier to show. Also, it's evil. Yeah, it's associated with the tricks. Uh, No matter the element, the emotions underlying it are the same for all fairies, and that is when Dowling gestures for Bloom to take her turn. Bloom puts her hands on the vessel's handles, and Dowling instructs her to open herself up to the world and push past all of her doubts, focusing on pure, positive thoughts. Telling a teenager to have a clear mind is kind of impossible. It seems like that in the magic dimension, people might be socialized a little bit differently, though. Because it it seems like everybody has a far easier time opening up about their feelings than your average teenager would. Probably because they know from a young age that that's what makes their magic work. Okay. Like, that emo- <laughs> you need to be emotionally available, otherwise you're gonna go fuss cuckoo bananas. Or you know you'll you'll start a house fire, or you'll make your uh, the toilet explode. I guess a mishap for like a a mind fairy would be like I don't know cerebral hemorrhaging. I don't know. That's dark. Ugh. Walk it back. I guess I a, was gonna go more on the line of like maybe schizophrenia. That's also too but dark. Even, uh, uh, hallucinations. Yeah. Um, overload for a mind fairy would probably. Sp- be like a chronic dissociation or something Ooh. like that. Ooh. Not fun. Ooh. Or worse, inducing it in other people. Ooh. Because if we... I mean, Musa is a universal uh, receiver, so there have to be universal donor wine fairies, you know? Yipes. Oh, I don't want to think about that. Ooh. So, uh, Bloom... Like, she starts making, like, these little, like, puttery flames come out. But since Bloom's firepowers have only given her a healthy dose of emotional trauma, they're not really cooperating. Aisha suggests that Bloom focus on her love for her parents, but that is also currently giving Bloom issues. And Dowling instructs Bloom 
not to think, since magic just comes from from feeling. And Bloom argues she knows what she's supposed to do, and the other students start muttering about how long things are taking. Uh, Bloom gets self-conscious. And, and she asks Dowling to move along with the lesson. She's not from around here, is she? Considering she's the only person with an American accent. After the lesson, Bloom is understandably frustrated with the outcome and tells Dowling that her powers seem to only manifest as blazing infernos or barely lighting a match. Dowling tells her that distraction can cause magic to be erratic. And when she turns to, you know, leave, Bloom just asks straight up if she's a changeling. Dowling gets this look on her face, too, and she's like, Where'd you hear that word? And uh, when Dowling does make the face and asks Bloom where she got that idea, Bloom mentions the previous episode's events with Aisha in the forest. And Dowling said that she didn't want to overwhelm Bloom with too much too quickly, which is basically, yes, you are a changeling. And Bloom retorts with, letting me know from teenagers the most gentle sources of information is much better than just not overwhelming me, isn't it? She then asks if Dowling even knows who her real parents are. And Dowling admits she doesn't, which is another reason she didn't want to tell her. This is something that I did notice. The Winx Club series as a whole has this weird hang-up on your real parents not being the ones who raised you. It's just bizarre, and I don't like it. See, the, the problem is neither of us have an adopted experience, and I'm sure that this might be a common sentiment among some adopted people, but I can almost guarantee that we're not dealing with writers who exactly understand the, the nuanced kind of, the emotional wounds that come along with the uncertainty that this kind of thing can entice. There's your big words for the day. Like, my thing is that even though we're not adopted, we are both queer people. And while we do have fine relationships with our parents, I'm not going to say great because there is the concept of chosen family. Brendan, for all intents and purposes, he's my little brother. Like, I don't know. I mean, we are the same person, but twice. Yeah. God hit copy and then paste and... Yeah, there was, there was just a couple months delay because nobody checked the printer to make sure the ink was filled out. <laughs> it was out of paper. <laughs> and Dowling simply states, come to class, learn, grow, and connect. The answers will come with time. And it really feels like she should just fade into the ether, but no, she just walks away. And Bloom huffs about this being cryptic and vague, and Bloom storms off. We move to the specialist training yard, where Dane is sparring with a female specialist as Sky and Riven watch. And uh, it's not really going great for Dane. He gets taken down after Riven yells, Sweep the leg! Uh, well, the specialist's name is Cat. Oh, the pink ranger, got it. <laughs> so that's where she went. So uh, Sky asks if Riven could at least be half as much of a dick. And uh, reminds Riven that he wasn't all that great in his first year either. 
since he sprained his ankle on the first day and got two black eyes. Uh, that's when he catches a glimpse of Stella wandering by. There's some more patter here, but I really don't like Bodie Riven. Uh, no. We're, we're back to the, uh, fuck you, Riven. Uh, so, uh, Sky sees Stella, so he, he leaves Riven to go and talk to Stella. Uh, Riven, nope. Dane, uh, hops off the training mat and grabs his phone, and he starts texting somebody. And, uh, Riven gets on the side of the ring next to him. And tells Dane he saw Dane creeping on his Instagram. It's Tara. He's messaging Tara. Oh, did it? Is it? Did you? Did you catch that on the screen? Yeah, and you also said having missed missed a few messages from Tara while sparring. Whomp whomp! I didn't read my own note there. <laughs> Whoopsie poopsie! Mister Widow note. Uh, Dane starts texting Tara back when Riven reveals that he saw Dane creeping on his Instagram. They've got sponsored by Instagram. Dane tries to deflect, but Riven's here to give him some good old-fashioned jack advice. Part one is to choose his friends carefully, which obviously means that uh, Riven doesn't like Tara, and uh, considering that she choked him out after uh, he tried bullying her, uh, I can kind of understand why, but I still like the fact that she choked him out and I think she should do it again. <laughs> and then he gives an actual combat tip about f- fighting isn't about the size you are. It's about outthinking your opponent. And he demonstrates this by picking a big dude out of the nearby specialists. Uh, it calls him Mikey. And uh, they start sparring and Riven jumps up, wraps his legs around the guy's waist, and then uses that momentum to flip him over and get him in an arm bar. Riven? Giving good advice? What? It was really cool, actually. I I, I really want to know who coordinated that stunt. That was really good. I applaud these stunt actors. We then shift focus over to Sky and Stella. Stella asks Sky where he thinks Dowling hid the burned one so she can go and get her ring back because she could get beheaded for losing the thing. And Sky says that he can consult some of the maps around the area, around the school, and points out that it would really be easier if they just told Dowling about it. And Stella says no, because Dowling took an oath of loyalty to the Queen of Solaria a.k.a. Stella's mom. So if it was found out that the ring was lost, Dowling would side with the queen instead of the princess. Because, you know, the queen is higher ranking than the princess. That's how things work around here. And her mom would do something she seems deathly afraid of, maybe beheading, if she ever found out that Stella lost the ring. Sky understandably sympathizes, and Stella thanks him for letting her sleep over. They hug it out, and Stella, seeing something over Sky's shoulder, asks him to tell her about the quiz once he finds out, and excuses herself as Silva approaches. 
That was actually a really nice out. It was. It was very smooth. So yeah, that Celtic rune test. Okay, bye! Sky, sensing that Silva is about to, says, Please don't lecture me. I'm already lecturing myself. And Silva says that there is comfort in the familiar, because he can very clearly see that Stella and Sky are familiar with each other, but discomfort is a catalyst for growth. No pain, no gain. He also revealed that he promised Sky's father that he'd looked after Sky, and they have a good surrogate father-son bonding moment with a quip that his that Sky's dad would have more profanity in his way of speech. And I want to meet that guy. Back in Bloom and Aisha's room, Bloom is on the phone with Vanessa, chatting about school stuff in veiled terms to keep up the masquerade. Bloom uh, mentions that classes at Althea are harder than she thought they would be, but uh, Vanessa says that a challenge would probably be good for Bloom and asks about the roommate situation. Uh, Bloom says that Aisha is a perfect straight-A athlete type and an overachiever who's quick to offer her opinions, and that's actually very similar to how Vanessa is. And um, they they joke about this, actually. So I am... I am now purely of the opinion that the scene in episode one where they had that horrible fight was just bad writing. Because uh, n- uh. we never see... I've watched the whole show. V is watching as we do the recordings. As having seen the whole show, she never acts like that again. Ever. My thoughts are maybe... And again, this is completely me is possibly this is her mom reacting to the trauma on her own like oh i almost died in a house fire i need to tell my like show like try to get on the same level as my daughter you know what i'm trying to say it i i agree that it could also be just like a shift in behavior caused by trauma yeah, facing her own mortality is like, I need to try and connect with my daughter more. Also, Bloom's mom still has a landline. It's kind of cute, honestly. It's a very parent thing. The, the parent thing is having a watch set up for Switzerland time. Yeah, instead of, like, just putting her phone... Like, I think my mom has a... I know she has a weather thing for my brother's uh, town in Minnesota... I don't know if she has a central time zone clock, but that's also really easy to figure out. But yeah, Vanessa has turned a watch to central European time. And when she checks it, she says it looks like it should be, it looks like it's about time for Bloom to go to bed. So uh, they, they wish each other good night. And then Bloom has this like really conflicted look on her face when she hangs up. God, the acting in the show is so good. Yeah, everybody are everybody's really talented. Abigail right. Cowan has a lot of good faces. Yeah, she does. Aisha taps the sign on the wall that says no face journeys. <laughs> Our focus is now on Beatrix. As she is walking through the specialist yard... Sticking out like a sore thumb because she is not in athletic gear. 
I think she's in her, like, share from Clueless, but if share from Clueless was blue, plaid <laughs> outfit. These outfits are also top-notch. Share from Clueless, if share from Clueless was also Veronica from Heathers. But also evil. <laughs> and she sidles up alongside Riven as he's about to leave. She asks if he's the lurky stoner guy from yesterday, and then loops her arm around his and pulls him aside. So we're getting some more of the, uh, tricks Riven situation. God, I, I honestly do like this Riven as a character way more than I do the cartoon one. He seems a lot more layered. Like, yeah. Like he- an ogre! <laughs> Well, he's still a douchebag, but he's a much more realistic one who doesn't seem to just be overly aggro towards girls for no reason. He's aggro towards everyone. Yeah. He's an equal opportunity. Us. Beatrix then says that she's noticed he seems like a proper delinquent and asks if he wants to help her break into Dowling's office. It's the second day of school. <laughs> He asks why he'd help her, and she points out that he's a guy and she's hot, and that made me giggle. Uh, Brendan, your note says it's, that seems a bit heteronormative of her. Which it does, but... Beatrix, you're a zoomer. Wake up. You know that gay people exist. Yeah, but I think she might have a good enough gaydar to know that this guy is into girls. Yeah, it's ambiguous if Riven is also into Dane as much as Dane seems to be into him, but it looks like he is, so... We'll, we'll get to it. When Riven asks what he'll get out of this, she gives a coy little... We'll have to see about that. And walks away. Riven watches her leave and says it's better than hanging out with a dinner lady Doris. Cut to dinner lady Doris warming up a plate with her hand. Like she grabs it and it sizzles, so I'm imagining she's got fire powers. And she she puts the dish on Aisha's lunch tray. Uh, Aisha is talking to Musa about how the vessel lit right up the second Musa touched it, and Musa points out that her powers are always on. So a crowded space like the dining hall is basically a nightmare. She can oh god, she can pick up on Doris being in physical pain. And she she scans the room and gives, like, little quick diagnoses. Like, she sees Dane. She doesn't know his name yet, but it's Dane. And says that he's scared and stressed, like a a bunny sensing sensing a hawk. And uh, Tara's dad walks by with an apple. And Musid diagnoses him as worried and tentative before admitting that it could also just be heartburn, since that feels pretty similar. Uh... As she looks around the room, though, she focuses on a boy in a green jacket, and she just hears literal music. And then he he walks away, and it's it's gone. Uh, when Aisha asks what happened with that, Musa says that she really doesn't have a clue. And then the two of them sit down with Bloom and Tara. I'd also like to note that Bloom is wearing an oversized sweater. This entire part of the episode. (laughs) 
she's just drowning in a black hoodie and i get it you're depressed (laughs) i'm sorry i have a case of the giggles tonight my god (laughs) all right here we are time to plan the ring heist or is it a heist if the burned one didn't anyway technically they have to well they have to uh break in and grab a thing without dun, people noticing dun, so it's dun, a heist dun, 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 dun. aisha suggests that she and bloom sit down and come up with a list of emotional triggers when bloom cuts her off and says that she'll be able to figure things out herself and this is a very earth teenager thing to do i could figure this out myself you're not my mom leave me alone Aisha's worried that Bloom is overthinking the whole thing due to the, you know, being a changeling thing. And when Bloom asks if everyone knows, Tara perks up and has a verbal realization that this is what must have gotten Bloom so worked up at the vessel. They're interrupted by Stella, who materializes out of nowhere, who says that she and Skye have come up with a plan to get her ring back. And she slaps a topographical map of the school on the table. As Tara starts to, um, pull out a back and say Olaf story, Skye sits down next to Bloom and asks how she's doing. You can still vaguely hear Tara talking in the background, which I think is adorable. And Skye notices that Bloom seems to be freaking out and pretending she's not. Stella, who is just completely tuning Tara out, keeps looking at Bloom and Skye while they're talking because... Apparently, the only conflict we can write between two girls is romantic rivalry. Even 16 years after the original release date of this show, how far we've come. And several countries away. Stella interrupts the two and asks Skye where he thinks the burned one is being kept. And when he gets up to get a better view of the map, she puts her hand on his arm so very unsubtly. Since only a few buildings outside the barrier are large enough to hide a creature of that size. Because, you know, a burned one is about the same size as your average person. Skye's nailed things down to the mill or the old barn. Tara suggests the barn. The barn? The barn. Tara suggests the barn is more likely since her father fortified the beams. She begins another back in St. Olaf story involving an injured horse, and Stella cuts her off by saying that they'll just need to sneak in there and get the ring. Aisha takes note of the fact that Stella is very liberally tossing around that word, we. And Musa points out that this really is more Stella's problem. But Stella retorts that, She's not the one who lost it. And Bloom is get, is pretty guilty about the whole thing because she's a decent person. And asks when they're going to go. Aisha knows that Bloom can't control her magic because she's seen her lose control of her magic and almost killed her because of the loss of control of her magic. Says that it's a bad idea to for Bloom to go along with Stella's peer pressure. And Bloom is working under the rationale of I lost the thing, I'm gonna get it. But 
no one's really under like no one's even acknowledging the extenuating circumstances around that. It really is Stella's fault, Stella's problem. She she should not be guilting you like this. If you want to go home, you can use my ring. Hey, it looks like you're having a bad time right now. Here's my ring. Do you want to go home? Oh my god, you lost my ring! Fuss off. It's great, but fuss off. After Tara confirms that the burned one is both restrained and subdued thanks to an oil called Zanbak that her father has distilled, she also says she can distill some more if needed. Stella thanks Tara for the help, Bloom for her responsibility, and thanks for nothing to Aisha and Musa. Bloom tells Stella to let her know when they're planning on getting the ring, and then Bloom dips. So I put a note here that I'm not crazy about this version of Stella. And again, I've seen the whole show. I understand exactly why she's acting the way she is. And honestly, with that context, all of her actions make a lot more sense in a rational way. But at the same time, Stella in the cartoon was written as a character who subverted the um, nasty rich kid trope by having her like be pretty instantly friendly towards Bloom and even the other girls as soon as she met them. And now she is a nasty rich kid. And, like, okay, her relationship with Skye at this point is still really vague and undefined, but because it's so vague, it's really unfair that she's lashing out at Bloom because Sky seems to be interested in Bloom, but they're not explicitly back together. In fact, in a second, Sky will even say that it's a complicated situation. It's it's just a very kind of cliche character motivation to do these things out of romantic spite. See, I have a completely different note here. Because, again, I'm not used to this kind of media. Stella has a very strong personality, yes. And it's completely different from the cartoon. And that, to me, makes this character more interesting because I don't know what she's thinking. It's a fair point. And this makes me want to figure out what she is thinking. With Stella in the cartoon, it's just... Fret not, girlfriend. You're cool. You're cool too. I like you. Ha ha. Jokes. Fashion. I don't know. It's, it, this whole series is a really nice change of pace for me. I I completely understand. I'm just coming at it from a person who has engaged with quite a bit of teen media. So I can understand how our basically our exposure to the same amount of tropes differs and how that'll change perception on this kind of thing. As a man who is almost 30. <laughs> As a man who's almost 30, but has engaged in, with a lot of media made for girls from, oh, the 16 to 20 age range. <laughs> if it's entertaining, it's entertaining. Exactly. Who am I kidding? Engaged with a lot of media for girls from the, say, 5 to 12 age range. Don't forget about the media for Japanese boys. 
from the 8 to 12 age range. So as Bloom walks around this really picturesque little flower bed surrounded by hedges, Sky goes racing after her. He, he flags her down, and he reassures her that she doesn't have to go along with what Stella wants just because Stella has a strong personality. Bloom, she reinforces the point that she just wants to help get the ring back because she's the one who lost it. Sky then realizes he's dealing with another strong personality, and Bloom jokes that he seems to have a type. They have, like, a little giggle about that before things get quiet and awkward again. And Sky lets Bloom know that before yesterday, he hadn't spoken to Stella in months because they had a very rough breakup. He doesn't want Bloom to think he's the kind of guy who would cheat on his girlfriend. Bloom points out that because they just met yesterday, she doesn't have a real opinion about him. And he says that's fair, and another awkward silence. Bloom finally speaks up and says that because the situation between Sky and Stella seems complicated, she needs a little bit less complication in her life right now. So she just kind of leaves Sky standing there in the garden awkwardly. Who wants to go back to Beatrix and Ribbon? They're in Dowling's office right now, and Riven says that their time there is limited, because Dowling takes a half hour for lunch, and Callum has 15. Which, 15 minutes for lunch? Yeah, that seems weird to me. It it it, it might be a UK thing, because I feel like in America it would be like Dowling takes an hour for lunch and Callum takes half. Uh, I don't know, it was just... Inhale your sandwich, sir! Beatrix seems impressed that uh, Ribbon has done this before. And he pours himself a glass of whiskey from a decanter that Dowling has in her office because, you know, sometimes being a headmistress can make you want to drink. He also asks Beatrix to be on the lookout for a vape that Dowling confiscated last year. And uh, Beatrix... (laughs) Has the exact same reaction that I would have. Whenever he seems cool, he has to say something to ruin it. Because of course Riven vapes. And he tries defending himself because it's a weed vape. Beatrix tells him to just smoke a joint. (laughs) Riven asks what Beatrix is even looking for to begin with. Test answers or something? And Beatrix snarks that the tests they give nowadays might as well be written in crayon. She's in Dowling's office looking for the things they don't teach at school. The secrets. She says the history of the school is far darker than the Dowling and the faculty want the student body to know. And she finds a bookshelf that reacts when she runs her fingers over it. Blue lightning jumping from her fingers. Riven asks if this means she's just some kind of hot, screwed up history nerd. And when she asks if it's a confusing archetype while approaching him and knocking his feet off of Dowling's desk, he gets a look in his eye. He says it's not confusing at all. And she leans down to kiss him, and the camera cuts away. I really hope they didn't smang in Dowling's chair. (laughs) 
Alright, uh, do you want to take the next two paragraphs? Because this is about the same size as Beatrix and Revan 2. Mm-hmm. So, after the camera does a discretionary cut, uh, we have some fantastic extra work establishing the scene here. Because it's just two people nodding at each other like a pair of parakeets. <laughs> I don't know what the what anybody told them to do. They made a choice and they stuck with it. And that choice is like when you see a video of, of a bird listening to music and they do the weird head wiggle. Watermelon cantaloupe pick a little grape. Because they can't actually pretend to talk because if they speak they have to pay them more. Uh, so, But Musa is packing up her bag and getting ready to leave the dining hall in the mid-ground. Uh, that is when she gets a glimpse of the boy in the green jacket again. And that same music starts playing. And she walks after him like she's in a little bit of a trance. But, uh, like, so he walks around a corner. She walks around the same corner. And there's a pair of doors there. I don't know why she stops there, but also she probably realizes that it's a little weird to just be following somebody around like that and quite obviously following them. <laughs> this is cute. Like, I'm digging this whole Musa thing right now. It's almost... Okay, can I ruin the mystique of this, though? No. Because this reminds me of Twilight. <gasps> Because she's attracted to him because she he doesn't sound like anything. He just sounds like music. And it's just like Bella sounds like silence because she has no thoughts and she's made to be a reader insert. <laughs> no thoughts, only khaki. <laughs> no thoughts, only full length maxi skirt. <laughs> no thoughts, only Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> You, oh god are you okay oh god so after uh musa abandons pursuit uh we get bloom hiking out to the stone circle where the vessel is still sitting and on the one hand i'm surprised it's not locked up but on the other hand it doesn't seem like it does anything with this and i don't think anybody could sell it dowling could probably just like summon it back to her office if she wanted <laughs> Akio Vessel. Ow! Uh, Bloom pulls her notebook out of her backpack and opens it to some notes she's made on magic, trying to focus as she puts her hand on the vessel and some embers start kicking up. We also get a, a shot of what's in the vessel, and it is those glass fire pit chips. So, like, it looks just mystical enough, but on the other hand, that lets us know we're dealing with a very practical effect. Which, on one hand, practical effects, yes, love them, work. On the other hand, I think that these in kayfabe are supposed to be, like, channeling crystals. Like, you channel your magic through it. Yeah. Because magic. Yeah, it's probably just some sort of crystal, but I, I, I just love that it's glass fire pit chips. Uh... That is when Stella interrupts her, and she says she's heard that Bloom is broken, and uh, kind of chastises Bloom for trying to think her way into magic. 
Bloom knows that magic relies on positive emotion. Dowling thought that earlier, and she's even tried making a list. Stella starts taunting Bloom about what could make her happy, and then about her changeling status. She's really just going for the throat here, and pushing every single one of Bloom's buttons. And finally, Bloom goes, you say one more thing, and Stella tells her to put her hands on the vessel. Because the most powerful magic comes from the worst emotions. Bloom grabs the vessel, and flames just shoot into the sky. And that ends this scene. Oh. Oh, this was rough to listen to. That was so cool. But yeah, this is very, very dangerous for a multitude of reasons. Specifically, she says that the um, most powerful magic comes from the worst emotions like anger and fear. And the fear thing I'm going to bring up a little later. We're in Dowling's office now, and Silva and Dowling are talking over the burned one situation. Because, you know, it's still here. It, it's it's basically a zombie chained up, and if it gets out, bad things happen. Silva has contacted the capital of Solaria, Solaria City, <laughs> probably not, which has a more secure prison, and he assures Dowling that the queen would scan its thoughts if she was asked. This does not confirm nor deny that the queen is a mind fairy because Dowling earlier said that fairies can access other elements that are not their own. I I can confirm now that Stella's mom is a light fairy. Makes sense. Dowling is hesitant because it's her school. Uh, I I think uh, what he means is like she could order it done. Not necessarily do it herself. Silva appears to the fact that the, that the longer the burned one is active, the more danger the students are in. Because again, this is a dangerous thing and students are curious creatures. And they have a zombie plague attached to them. Like literally, if one scratches you, it will turn you into a burned one. Dangerous. Dangerous zombie. That's a common writer joke. Please keep that in. I'll keep it in for you. Or I'll put it as an intro. Who knows? Um, Dangerous the zombie. Debit X. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> the scene fades to a group of black SUVs driving through an open field. Silva is inside one, directing the Solarian military transport to where the burned one is being held captive. He sees someone in the trees. And tells the driver to stop. There's only glimpses, but it's very clearly Beatrix in her surreptitious evil-doing robes from the end of last episode. Silva gets out of the SUV, sword in hand, in its scabbard, because he still has no idea who the hell this is. By the way, that sword is very cartoony. Like, it's a lot brighter than everything else. I think it's fairly understated. Like, it's- the hilt is very blue. Yeah. But, you know, makes it visible. Whatever. And then we hear the burned one roar in the distance, which I'm pretty sure is also made by a practical effect, maybe similar to how one of Godzilla's noises 
is made. Like, this sounds like a string instrument being strummed or, like, being bowed in a way that it should not be bowed. You know, I just realized the vibe that this scene gives me is very Final Fantasy XV. See, I'm getting Jurassic Park, but... Uh, uh, parallels. <laughs> I've not played Final Fantasy XV. Just uh, dudes in black with swords, but they're in cars. <laughs> Yeah, dudes in black with dinosaurs, but they're in cars. (laughs) The next morning, Bloom is still asleep as Aisha comes in, probably from one of her daily swims, and Bloom has left her notebook wide open on her desk. Uh, This has a- there's a new page there devoted to exploring the power of negative emotions. This immediately cuts to Muse and Aisha walking through corridors discussing the prior night's events. Aisha doesn't like the idea of what Stella is teaching Bloom, and Musa gets a ping off of her. She asks why Aisha is so eager to be friends with Bloom, and Aisha thinks that roommates should be friends, and asks Musa if that seems odd. Musa points out that she and Tara aren't really friends either. Aisha changes the subject and Musa's encounters the in green. Apparently, Musa can sometimes feel him like he's right around the corner, but when she turns around, he's not there. And that's when she hears the music again. Uh, she she lets Aisha... <laughs> I'm sorry. There it is, that music again. All the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. There's that music again. Hello from the other side. <laughs> There's that music again. You count the medals. One, two, and three. <laughs> Life goes on. Everything goes coming up. There's that music again. And it's the impression that I get by the Mighty Mighty Bostons. <laughs> Aisha starts to say there's nobody there when the boy in green just phases through the wall Danny Phantom style. Turns out he's an earth fairy. Musa asks <laughs> uh, Musa asks if he's cute, and Aisha just grabs the attention, just like grabs the guy's attention by yelling, hey you! And asks for his name, and Musa instantly regrets every decision she's ever made in her life. <laughs> hey, what's your name? Uh... Sam, hi, I'm Aisha, this is Musa, have fun. Uh, Musa responds to this with the quote, I hate you, I will always hate you, I'll hate your children, I'll hate your children's children. I love that line. As as Tess mentioned, the Earth Fairy's name is Sam. And uh, when Aisha jokes that Musa has been stalking him, he says he's pretty lucky. As far as meat cutes go, this one is actually really, really cute. And then Aisha dips out and lets Sam and Musa talk. <laughs> bye bye We're in the greenhouse now, and Tara is sorting through plants while Dane sits at some distilling equipment. And I am getting horrifying flashbacks to English class in college. <laughs> where we had to read perfume. 
Tara grabs a pot from the shelf and they banter a bit about chemistry vocab with her playfully threatening to throw the pot at him if he keeps teasing her. And I'm like, this is adorable. I am loving this. Tara shows off her powers when she makes the flower bud she pulled from the shelf blossom, which Dane finds impressive and asks Tara if she's working on an extra credit project. Or meth. I was just going to say, it's really interesting that the show later tries to... Like, there is kind of a romantic undertone to a lot of what happens with Dane and Tara. But I don't know if it's my blinders on or what, but honestly, this just reminds me of how you and I act a lot of the time. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. We're heterosexual life partners. Essentially. We're not dating. We're just two gays who happen to be of opposite gender identities who hang out a lot and people tend to assume we're dating. Which is always... Which tends to get us better service at restaurants, to be honest. It gets us great service at restaurants, but it's always weird when they only ever talk to me. Yeah. Any hoozles. Before Tara can answer, Riven texts Dane and asks if he'll be too busy picking flowers to come to practice. Ugh. Tara clarifies they'll be distilling an un- An unguent. I have never heard this word before today. Yeah, neither had I. I thought it was unguent. And then I, I googled it and found out, no, unguent. Which is a kind of grease that you use as it, an ointment. It's kind of like an oil, a serum, a distilling, an essence of yeah. Zambac- yeah, it's like a really thin grease made from sandback flowers. And it's protection against the burned ones. And all she needs Dane to do is separate the buds once she's bloomed them. He starts to work and then he gets a gift from Riven of a woman pulling petals off a flower. He sighs and tells Tara he needs to go. We transition right to Riven, who's smoking on his bed. And Beatrix is sitting at the end of it doing homework. He shows her what he sent Dane. And she dryly points out how clever bullying by gift is. Uh, she also specifies homophobic bullying. <laughs> Riven counters her accusation by claiming he doesn't think Dane is completely gay, which makes it biphobia technically. So, your defense. Uh, but go off. And even if he is gay, it's no excuse to be lame. Chaotic pan bullying gentle by. Uh, Beatrix kind of, she does that thing where you try to uh, point out to somebody how stupid their thing is by just stating it plainly to their face, you know? Like, so you're really going to throw sugar on this grease fire, aren't you? Well, when you put it that way. And uh, she basically asks if he's going to help Dane by making him feel bad about himself. And when she talk, when she mockingly calls him a well-intentioned bully, he asks her if it's a confusing archetype. And they have a giggle. Gugh. This is when Sky walks in the room. Uh, because apparently Sky and Riven do just share this... Like, I don't know if they're part of a larger suite, but they definitely share this dorm room. 
I wonder if in season two we'll meet the rest of their suite, and it's uh, Timmy, Brandon, and Helia. Uh, Sky throws the books he's carrying onto his desk, says hello to Beatrix, and Beatrix realizes she's being rude by vaping and not offering him a hit. <laughs> uh, so she offers him some of the uh, dank weed juice, and he politely declines. <laughs> he then tells Riven that he is not only an idiot for smoking weed during the day, but also for having Beatrix in their room. Since there'd be consequences if Selva found out. So I'm guessing this just means that either it's a cross-program thing or it's a, um, like, a, th- we haven't seen any co-ed dorms, let's put it that way. Right. So no unsupervised girls in an all-male dorm room or the other way around. Which makes sense to me in a school of teenagers. Hormones running wild. Uh, Riven tells Sky about Silva leaving to meet with the uh, Solarian military detachment and tells him to ask his girlfriend, since she'd probably know. And then Beatrix teases Sky about dating a girl who looks like she could be his sister. And honestly, they do look quite a bit alike. Uh, Sky realizes, though, that the military rumors are true. And Riven confirms they've most likely captured a burned one and are having transferred to the Solarian capital. Riven starts cozying up to Beatrix since they've got nowhere to be, and I guess they're going to snang again right in front of Sky. But <laughs> Beatrix excuses herself to go to the library. Uh, Sky ends the scene by asking Riven if he knows exactly how much of a bad idea Beatrix is, and Riven just blows him off. Operation Ring Retrieval! Stato! Aisha is eating a snack on her bed very loudly. I wasn't able to gather what snack it was, but it looked like they're just plain tortilla chips. Yeah, it looks like some kind of uh, chip or crisps, as they would say in Ireland. Like, I get it when it refers to potato, but I don't get like tortilla chips not being called tortilla chips, but that's just me. And Bloom is studying off to the side and by off to the side i mean at her desk and there's a quiet quiet munch crunch study study for a good like 30 seconds and aisha breaks the silence telling bloom that she doesn't think bloom should be learning about magic from stella as her methods are unreliable this might have something to do with why stella is Storming with a bunch of first years. Bloom asks how Aisha knows about her methods, and Aisha lets her know that she saw her notebook on her desk that morning when she was getting ready, open to the very page that said, Stronger magic equals negative emotions. Like, things were bolded, underlined, and starred. It's eye-catching. You drew a heart on the page, you idiot. I too would be like, what the hell is that? Bloom tells Aisha to stop trying, and Stella comes in wearing the- I'm sorry, what? It's a very ugly coat. And see, I- is this the same outfit that they go into the woods with? Yeah, it's the one from the promos where she's got, like, the like the cape vest over a pink blouse. She looks like she's about to go wandering through the woods whimsically. <laughs> and I don't and like I it. I love it! I love it! 
It has so much movement. It's incredible how much you despise this and I adore it. Here's my here's my only complaint with it. It needs to decide if it wants to be a vest or a cloak. It can't be both. <laughs> because it is both and it looks like Stella's wearing a snuggie. Stella comes in wearing the most divisive coat of the episode and tells Bloom that the burned one is being moved. So it's now or never. Aisha once again says, this is a bad idea. And Bloom and Stella ignore her, leaving, and Aisha follows behind because if someone is going to be responsible, it might as well be me. I like that that's Aisha's main character trait. Somebody has to be responsible here. It might as well be me. I give people out and I'm the responsible adult. While Operation Ring Retrieval gets kicked off, Sam and Yuza are continuing their conversation from earlier by walking through the gardens. And Sam asks Musa what kind of music he sounds like, suggesting like a choir or like a bad shampoo commercial. <laughs> okay, is this vintage commercial from the 80s about jewelry, perfume, <laughs> travel, or shoes? Or pe- <laughs> Trick question. Periods. In my experience, it's more like trick question. It's actually about hand lotion. (laughs) Or trick question. It's actually about, I don't know, a grill. (laughs) Vintage commercials were very misleading. Uh, That's how they got you. Musa asks why she would tell somebody who she just met this kind of information. And he... He says that he's actually happy they met and jokes that meeting him is a terrible mistake. He then suggests Enya. Musa has no idea who that is, and Sam gets mock offended. Who can say where the road goes? Where the day goes? We will rise! <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Do you remember that, that vine that what moms do in the tub and like she gets in the tub to that Edna song and then it switches to heavy metal music <laughs> I love the internet uh, Musa honestly answers that he sounds like the absence of chaos Sam points out that that could still be Enya. and when Musa asks about his powers he says they're boring literally he can bore through dirt, stone, and other natural materials. That's funny. Uh, he isn't supposed to do it at school, but it like shaves three minutes off his commute between classes. Uh, when Buza asks what he does with the all that time he saves, he bounces right back that he forces empaths to experience peace. This is super cute. And that's I am enjoying this. This is when music gets a text from Tara asking for help in the greenhouse. Silva's moving the burned one, so they need to move. Musa says she needs to go, setting roommate drama, and Sam jokes that he'll that she'll feel him around later. Ew. Yeah, that wasn't meant to sound dirty, but the way that it like the delivery is certainly not. <laughs> but it's really the only way it can sound when you write it out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I gotcha. 
back to Operation Ring Retrieval! Stella Bloom and Aisha are walking away from the school in a very straight line towards the forest. And Aisha once again says, this is a bad idea. And Stella's just like, who invited you? (laughs) We get drone footage of the Irish countryside with none of the girls in the shot because they couldn't be asked to be there, I guess. And then they meet back up with Bloom, Stella, and Aisha at the edge of the barrier. Aisha tells Stella that she needs her and asks if the plan is to dazzle the burned one while Bloom struggles to light a fire. This just makes me think of uh, Stella flat, like rapidly blinking a flashlight while Bloom desperately rubs a pair of sticks together. How are we going to distract this thing? Dress and drag and do a hula? <laughs> wow! <laughs> are you aiming? Yep, yep, yep. For some flaming? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you could get a big ring too. Oi! <laughs> Stella says that she's fixed Bloom, and Aisha counters that negative emotions are unreliable, and Stella's methods won't work in the long run. Yeah. And that's when Tara and Musa join up. Musa having helped distill the Zen back. Stella then asks Tara if she knows where the barn is, and when Tara starts to describe a nearby landmark, which is a stump that looks just like... Something. Stella interrupts and directs her to show, not tell. Outside of the barn, as the girls are walking up, Musa gets pinged, so she starts walking, like, at a 90-degree angle from it. Past the barn, and Tara, like, trails off after her, leaving Bloom, Stella, and Aisha to investigate the barn itself. Bloom pulls open the doors, and they find the barn empty, with the chains hanging from the ceiling, which makes Stella start to panic about her mom's going to kill her. Uh-oh. Outside, Tara asks Musa what she's picking up on. Musa answers that she can't quite pick out what the ceiling is, and then doubles over in pain as this ear-piercing shriek pierces her mind. And that's... It's Voldemort. That's when Tara looks up and calls for the others. They have a problem. Just outside the barn is the Salarian military detachment absolutely butchered. It is nothing but bodies and blood and bad things. Yipes. Stella realizes that the burned one must still be around. Bloom, who had stuck around in the barn, begins hearing the same uh, mysterious mystical whispering that she did last episode. And she follows these whispers back out of the barn. As the other four survey the carnage, Tara recognizes Silva who is still alive, if only barely, leaned up against a tree. Aisha uh, realizes that Bloom isn't with them, so she goes off to search for her. And Tara tells Stella to follow Aisha while she and Musa take care of Silva. Bloom has wandered into the part of the forest where the Ringwraiths live, because it's a very dark part of the it's really cool because it's not a day for light filter this legit looks like low natural light conditions 
and she comes across Edward Cullen showing off his sparkles to Bella. This is me! Uh, what? Sparkles. <laughs> she does keep hearing that woman's voice calling her name, so I definitely think this is some sort of Daphne thing. And then Bloom gets snapped out of the trance when she hears some footsteps. Back with the piles of corpses. <laughs> Never thought I'd say that in reference to Wings Club. Hmm. Um, Silva pulls his sword on Terra and Musa, telling them to get back. If you remember, the burned ones turn people who they don't kill. Terra, who reveals her last name as Harvey in this scene, recognizes that he's been infected by a burned one and tells him that they can help. She uses her powers to make a root from the tree, grab his hand, and pull it down, making him drop the sword, and to stop him from any kind of squirming. And Musa starts to focus on Silva's fear and pain because it's the loudest emotion she has right now. But Tara actually grounds her by telling Musa to focus on her because she is calm and she knows what to do in this situation. Tara can hold Silva's head stable, but Musa will need to administer the Zanback because Tara knows what to do with injured people. Tara holds him steady while Musa pours some in his mouth, and we can actually see that the burned one infection has caused his eyes to turn black, and they are turning a bit less darkened as, like, the Zanback potion takes effect. It kind of reminds me of the first scene of The Witcher, where uh, Geralt's downed one of his potions and his eyes are black and all the veins near his eyes are black, too. It's a really cool effect. So Aisha and Stella are trekking through the woods, searching for Bloom. Stella mentions that it's about to get dark outside. So Aisha tells her to just light it up. Stella snaps like she has before to conjure that little light ball she takes selfies with, but nothing happens. And then when she asks Aisha to give her a second, Aisha says she doesn't have time for Stella's powers to fritz out and that she should go back to the school to get help. Aisha walks off, and Stella keeps trying to conjure light, leaving her alone. She looks around, she panics, and then she runs in what looks like an almost truly random direction. Remember how I said earlier that, well, how they said earlier that fear and anger aren't necessarily reliable sources of magic? Stella's terrified here. She can't access her magic right now. Bloom has wandered deeper into the woods, and there's, like, some god rays peeking through the canopy. It's really neat. Uh, that's when she hears that growl the burned ones make, and when she turns, it's only a couple of yards away. It starts sprinting through the trees at her, and Bloom holds up her hand, trying to focus on her powers. It closes in, and she does manage to get, like, a pretty good fireball off. But it only sets it on fire. It doesn't seem to do any damage. So now she has an angry on fire zombie uh, <laughs> parkouring her way. And that's when a water cannon comes in from the side, blasts it, and impales it on a tree branch. 
That was super cool. It really was. I love how they show Aisha's powers because liquid water tends to get kind of a bad rep as a superpower, but this is really, really neat. Ice isn't the only awesome version of water powers. Aisha asks Bloom if she's okay, and they very cautiously move towards the burned one. It's not moving, and it does have a tree branch sticking out of it. That hasn't necessarily killed them in the past. Like, they can be shot and whatever, and it doesn't do anything. But no, it looks like this one's gone. It's it's in a crucifixion pose. It's, it's probably dead. It's T-posing. <laughs> and it's not asserting dominance. Uh, Aisha compliments Bloom on her control in the moment. They look to see if it has Stella's ring, and it looks like it shoved it into its own ribcage. These things don't have pockets. So it just kind of stuck it in its jarred flesh. Ew. So uh, Ew. they have a brief back and forth of, I'm not touching that. Ew. And then Bloom has to reach in and just kind of yank it out. Uh, it makes squelchy noises. Yeah, it's like... It's like if you baked a ring into a piece of beef. And then uh, once they have the ring, she tells Aisha it's time to go. Side note, do you have a wet nap on you? (laughs) Clorox wipe, anything? Makes you crave barbecue. Ugh. Ugh. Back at Alfea, it feels so good to say that. Sky is standing on the balcony above the courtyard when he's approached by Stella, obviously distraught. It is clearly much later in the day because everything is dark and dim and gray and, you know, like twilighty. Oh, God! Mm. <laughs> he asks her what happened, and she explains. That the burned one got loose, she got lost, and her powers weren't work, and she sounds like she's about to break down, genuinely terrified. Sky grounds her to the moment and asks her to explain everything that happened, and that's when Tara and Musa come in, supporting Silva. Sky sees what happened, and immediately runs downstairs, leaving Stella behind. Tara calls for a med kit as she and Musa get Silva to the courtyard. Dane and Beatrix are among the students in the courtyard, and Beatrix hops up to get the headmistress because what the hell else is she gonna do? While Tara asks Dane to help carry Silva into the greenhouse. She then tells Sam to get Dad. Hold on. Turns out Sam is Tara's brother. Dun dun dun! This scene was so good. It's like, wait, what? He's like, oh yeah, that's my brother. And Muse is just like, oh. It's like that scene in a Christmas story. She might as well go, oh, fudge. Beatrix busts into Dowling's office where she's going over some papers with Callum. And Beatrix tells her that Headmaster Silva has been injured. I didn't catch that, but good on you, Brendan. Yeah, yeah, from the way Beatrix said Headmaster Silva, it makes me think that he and Dowling are, like, on equal footing. They just control the two halves of the school. And that, cumulatively, they would probably answer to a board of directors. 
that's ten that tends to be how this kind of thing works. Right. Dowling immediately jumps up because she knows how important this situation is and leaves the room with Callum. Which conveniently leaves Beatrix alone in Dowling's office. She makes her hands spark with her lightning because that's that's her stick, I guess. And approaches the bookcase with the hidden door behind it. She starts channeling electricity, then the door slides open, revealing the secret passage. We cut to the greenhouse, where Ben tells Tara how proud he is of her for saving Sylvia's life. He's treating Silva's wounds and cleaning them, while Skye just kind of hovers around, worried about it. Silva can speak now, and he tells Skye to let Ben work. Dowling comes into the greenhouse, immediately saying that she probably should have agreed to move the burned one sooner, and requested a larger military presence. And Silva tells the students to clear out. Uh, Once they have... Silva tells Dowling and Ben he saw someone let the burned one loose on purpose. And they have a panic. Whoa. Back at Dowling's office, Beatrix is interrupted from contemplating this open door by Callum, who asks what she's doing there. And it looks like she's been caught. But then he steps into the office and congratulates her on being clever enough to set the burned one free as a distraction. He also huh. he also confirms there is a magical trap behind the bookcase. She asks if he has any idea how to get past it, and he doesn't because he's not a fairy, which he suspects is why he sent Beatrix. She ribs him over how ego-wounding it must be to be replaced with a teenage girl, before reminding Callum that he gets impatient. They're there because Dowling, Silva, and Tara's dad, who she calls Harvey, have been hiding their dirty laundry under Alfia for the last 16 years, and they're going to air it out. Bloom's biological parents are trapped in carbonite downstairs. <laughs> Misa Java Wookie. <laughs> okay, so Callum says he's not a fairy. Right. Is he another fair folk, or is he just here? Probably the same way the specialists are, since we haven't seen any of them use magic, so... He's probably just... Someone who lives in the other world. I have a theory of what he could be, but that will have to wait until the last episode. It seems un- he's a gnome. Seems unlikely, though. All right. So after that, very shocking revelation to me, anyway. We cut to later that night, where Bloom and Aisha are getting ready for bed. Aisha lets Bloom know that Musa and Tara are headed back to the suite and reassures her that Silva is going to be okay. Aisha has her fucking toothbrush going this entire time, which I remind you sounds like a goddamn chainsaw. And Bloom asks if it's industrial strength. Aisha asks if it bothers her that she's brushing her teeth. Getting closer to Bloom it while she talks, so the 
toothbrushes louder. <laughs> and Aisha runs off with Bloom giving chase and a little laugh before she notices that Stella has come into the suite. This was a very adorable thing. Oh my god, they're dating. It was a cute interaction. My gay little heart says they're dating. Bloom asks where Stella was, and apparently Stella came up with a cover story so they wouldn't get in trouble. I don't know how true this is. Just because it feels like Stella was just having a mental breakdown outside. I don't know. That's just me. Bloom gives Stella back her ring, and Stella accepts it by requesting that they never speak at this day again, before going into her room. <laughs> Sky comes in having been with Stella because of what just happened, and he looks like he's about to say something to Bloom before Stella calls him into her room. And as he goes, Stella shoots Bloom a very dirty, cocky look that basically says he's mine. Before closing the door. Bloom rushes back to her in Aisha's room, and Aisha comes in behind her. They talk about the day's events, and Aisha realizes why Bloom's being so stubborn. She just needed to do things her own way, and Aisha can sympathize with that. Bloom knows that Aisha just wanted to help, and Aisha admits that the whole situation at Althea is pretty new for her, and she just wants things to go well. She asks why Bloom wandered off at the barn, and Bloom admits that she just doesn't know. She felt a connection to the burned one. Which is, in Aisha's word, weird. <laughs> Bloom, however, has come to accept the weird. And even though her rational brain has limits, by opening up emotionally, she can just feel the magic around. She starts saying that it's it's new and it's scary, but she stops dead in the middle of her sentence. Aisha turns around to ask Bloom what she was about to say, and Bloom's eyes have gone pure white and she is staring into space. Episode end. Ah! That was horrifying! It's very spoopy. And when we say pure white, like... No irises, no, like, and there's like, like a gray, cloudy white. Seems like opening up to her magic has led to a consequence that we'll have to examine next time. So. On Dragon Ball Z. All right. So I also forgot to do a best worst MVP for this episode, but... Quick and Dirty Edition. Best is Aisha's Water Cannon. Oh, that was good. Uh, worst is uh, Stella's Weird Possessive Cleanliness. Yeah. And MVP for this episode is going to the person who made the most meaningful contribution. And we can't give it to Bloom because Bloom is the main character. So everything is about her. Tara. Yeah, let's give it to Tara. She saved somebody's life today. Yeah, and she helped Musa ground herself. Did we give it to Tara last time? I think so, for choking out Riven. 
my best is going to be the attempt on getting the authorities brought into this. They certainly tried. Didn't go very well, but they tried. My worst is going to be Aisha's fucking toothbrush. <laughs> followed very closely by the digging the ring out of the burned one. That was icky and gross. <laughs> and yeah, best is Tara. And this is not, like, personal bias. She is legitimately the best. She did the best. She did the, She was the most valuable fairy in this episode. So, with that squared away, uh, if you liked what you heard today, you can, if you're interested in following us personally, you can find me, Brendan, at Sonata Waves. You can find me, Tess, at Pocky Slice on Twitter. That is Pocky, like the delicious Japanese snack, slices in... Sliced up soldier? I don't know. Ew. <laughs> slices in a slice of barbecue pork roast with a ring buried in it. <laughs> Join us next time when we dip into episode three, our halfway point, Heavy Mortal Hopes. Until next time, meeting adjourned. Welcome back. I had to check on Cleo, make sure she wasn't dead. <laughs>